It's wonderful to be here today and to be assembled in this place, to be gathered with each and every one of you, and to be able to be your speaker. As uh, many of you know, about 11 years ago, Liz and I left Bakersfield after having lived here for a number of years to move to Missouri. And it's hard to believe that was 11 years ago. And then about two years ago, so after being in Missouri for nine years, my family and I packed up our life and we moved overseas to do work in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia. And over the course of about six months after we had been in Malaysia, we took a short trip, what was supposed to be two weeks, to Australia to visit some Christians in that area. And then COVID happened and we got stuck. The borders of Malaysia closed, the borders of Australia closed, and we spent the next year and a half in Australia just trying to wait things out to get back to Malaysia. Unfortunately, we were not able to do that, but uh, after being overseas for two years, we decided it was time for us to come back to America and, in fact, come back to California. And so after being out of the state for 11 years, we're very excited that we're moving back and just up the road in the Fresno area to work with the church in Clovis. So you all will likely see a little more of us than you have been over the last 11 years since we'll be just a few hours up the road. I invite you to turn to Psalm 72 this morning, and we're going to read the entirety of that psalm to introduce our study. Now, Psalm 72 is unique in the Psalter, which is the collection of 150 psalms that we have in the Old Testament portion of our Bible, because Psalm 72 is the only psalm ascribed to King Solomon. And Solomon wrote this psalm to talk about a time when God's special king would take the throne. So let's read Psalm 72, and then we will go to God in prayer. Verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight and he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily. He shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those in the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. 
His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall call him blessed and be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This morning, I want to talk to you about the four pillars of the gospel. But before we study, let's pray at this time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On the earth, God planted a paradise garden called Eden. And in Eden, God placed his image bearers, man and woman. God gave Adam and Eve the charge to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and to subdue it for the honor and glory of God. That is, Adam and Eve were tasked with taking what they had in Eden, a place of perfect union and fellowship with God, and covering the entire globe to make more image bearers who knew the Lord and worshiped and honored him as their creator until the whole earth was filled with the knowledge and glory of God. In Eden, Adam and Eve were sort of like royal priests. They were royal because they were given authority and dominion over the earth. And they were priests because they ministered in God's holy presence, serving him and worshiping him. As the Bible says, God would walk in the garden. So God placed his image bearers in the garden. He gave them their charge, their mission. And then everything was ruined when sin entered the world. Instead of accepting God's rule, Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to elevate themselves, to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, good and evil, to make their own decisions and to reject the authority of God. And they did this when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But from that moment onward, when sin and death entered the world, when Adam and Eve became separated from their creator, God, Began to, work, began to work out a rescue plan. A plan to bring his creation, his uh, image bearers, back into his holy presence. A plan to enable the uh, image bearers to do the mission they were created to do. A plan to undo all of the consequences of sin in the world. So God began to really work out this plan when he called a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham was a man of tremendous faith. He wasn't perfect or sinless, not at all. But he was a man who was always loyal to God. So God made promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you a, a great nation. I'm going to give your people, your descendants, a land, a good land, a land that flows with milk and honey. And through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God continued to work with Abraham and his offspring as his human partners until finally, a few generations later, Abraham's children ended up in Egypt. And in Egypt, they became slaves. They were in terrible bondage. They were oppressed and sorely burdened by their Egyptian overlords. So God raised up the deliverer Moses. And God sent the plagues on the land of Egypt. Moses shepherded the people out. He brought them safely across the Red Sea. He took them all the way to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God appeared. The presence of God had been lost since Eden. But now on the mountain, in the smoke and thunder and lightning and billowing fire, God appeared. 
And he told those people the covenant watchword. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He gave them the law. He gave them the, the blueprint for the tabernacle, which was sort of a, a mobile Eden. It was a place, a sacred space, where God could come down and dwell among his people and they could enjoy his presence and worship and honor him. God eventually led the Israelites all the way into the land of Canaan, that good land he had promised to Abraham centuries earlier. And in the land, God set them up and told them, if you follow me, if you're faithful to the covenant that I have given you, everything will be good. You'll have rest, you'll have peace, safety from your enemies, abundance in the land, but of course, sin once again got in the way. And the people cyclically and generationally rebelled against the Lord. Finally, God decided to raise up a prophet by the name of Samuel. And he told Samuel, I want you to go out and I want you to revive genuine religion in the land. And Samuel did that. But when Samuel was old, the people rejected his leadership and the leadership of his sons. And they cried out to God. They said, we want a king like all the nations around us. And you know what? God gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them King Saul, who started out pretty okay, but eventually rebelled against the Lord and led the nation into chaos and ruin. The Philistines invaded. Everything was going terribly. Saul died in the battlefield, and God said, okay, enough of that. We're going to do it my way now. And he raised up another king, a king who was after his own heart, the shepherd boy turned giant slayer, King David. Now, David was like Abraham. He was not perfect or sinless. David could be cruel and violent. He was an adulterer, but he was always loyal to God. He never abandoned the Lord. He never worshiped idols. And so just like with Abraham, all those years before, God made some promises to David. He said, one day, one of your descendants is going to sit on an eternal throne. And he's going to rule over an everlasting kingdom. David died, and it looked like maybe Solomon was that son that God had promised. But no, no, it wasn't Solomon. Solomon allowed idolatry into the land, into the holy city of David on Mount Zion. And so because of that, God divided the kingdom in two. The Davidic dynasty continued to rule in Judah in the south, but in, north, in the north, no Davidic king reigned in Israel. Now, the two nations uh, had a few times where things were going okay, but most of the time, the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah basically went further and further away from God. And during this time, God didn't abandon his people. He never gave up on them. He decided to send them prophets. And these prophets would come and they would announce God's judgment upon the land. They would call the people to repentance, try to bring them back to fidelity to the covenant. But most importantly, the prophets were announcing that God was not done in the world. There was still an ancient rescue plan that God initiated after the fall. And he was still working that out. God was still going to bring about a great restoration to Israel and a deliverer and the hope of true salvation and genuine forgiveness of sins. This prophetic message of hope began to wrap around a figure the prophets called the Messiah. And the Messiah was God's anointed, God's chosen, the one that God would send into the world to accomplish the rescue plan that he had promised way back to Abraham and even before. Now, eventually, the Israelites went to Babylon, and they spent 70 years in captivity. But hope never died. 
Prophets like Daniel continued to announce that God was still at work in the world. And the kingdom, the great kingdom of justice and righteousness was coming. It was an eternal kingdom and all the nations would be subservient to this kingdom. The Israelites came back from Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They refortified the city. And for a little while, things seemed to be going okay until some serious disappointment set in. See, when they built this temple, God didn't show up. Oh, when they built the tabernacle in the days of Moses, and when Solomon built the first temple, as soon as it was inaugurated and consecrated, the cloud came down and the presence of the Lord filled those holy places, but not so with this new temple. And worse than that, the Israelites were still being ruled by foreigners, by heathens, by idolaters. There was no re-enthronement of a Davidic king after their return from Babylon. So the people understood that God wasn't done. There was still something amazing that God was going to bring about. And so they were waiting. And this hope was building. And the anticipation was building until finally, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And when Jesus came for the first time, the gospel was proclaimed. Now, if I was to ask you this little question right here, what is the gospel? How would you answer? How would you answer? I think many of us might turn to a passage like this one in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5 where the Apostle Paul rehearses the sort of bare bones of the gospel that he had preached when he spent a year and a half establishing the congregation in Corinth. In this passage, Paul says that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. And we usually stop at verse 4 with resurrection, but actually the sentence finishes in verse 5. So it's actually the death, burial, resurrection, and appearances of Jesus. Regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says that these things happen according to the scriptures. That is, according to the old scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. This was in accordance with the message of the prophets. And this was not just some historical event, Paul says. He said Jesus died for our sins. But 1 Corinthians 15 is not the only place where Paul does something like this. In the book of Romans, when Paul is introducing himself to those Christians, he does something very similar. Now, Romans is the apostle's most thorough, most complete treatise on the gospel. It spans 11 chapters. And in these 11 chapters, Paul is presenting to a group of Christians he did not really know, he'd never been to Rome, what his gospel was all about. So he introduces it right here in the first couple of verses with these words. He begins with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel, Paul goes on to say, that God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, you might notice that these two gospel presentations have a few things that are similar. Obviously, they're both about Jesus. They both mention the resurrection. They both mention something about sins being forgiven because of the work of Christ. But other than that, these two gospel presentations are pretty different. There's nothing in Romans 1 about the burial or post-resurrection appearances. Really, there's not even anything about the death of Jesus in Romans 1. There's nothing in 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus being a descendant of David. Or that the spirit of holiness was at work in cooperation with God, raising Jesus from the dead. So what we have here are some kind of different gospel presentations. These aren't the only ones. There are more. In the book of Acts, we have all kinds of sermons that present the gospel. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is on the first missionary journey. He comes to the city of Pisidian Antioch. He goes into the synagogue. They ask him to speak. And he gives this sermon that's recorded here in Acts 13, 16 through 41. We'll not read it. Let me summarize it for you. He begins by talking about the exodus out of Egypt. He talks about the monarchy in Israel and King David and the fact that Jesus is David's true heir. He talks about the ministry of John the baptizer and how Jesus was rejected by Israel, how he was crucified, how he was resurrected, how the apostles were eyewitnesses of all these events. And then Paul goes to the scripture. He quotes Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. And Paul's conclusion in this sermon is that now, because of Jesus... The forgiveness of sins is possible and available to all people and that all men and women are made right with God by faith. All men and women are justified by faith. In Acts 2, we have something kind of similar but kind of different. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter begins his sermon by pointing out that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what all those people were seeing in that moment, was a fulfillment of the old scriptures of Joel 2. He mentions the miraculous ministry of Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was raised. He quotes Psalm 16, which Paul also quotes in this sermon here in Acts chapter 13. And then he comes to the climax of the sermon where he says, Jesus is the true Davidic king. The apostles are the witnesses of the resurrection. And in Acts 2.36, he sums it all up when he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What we have in these four passages are four different gospel presentations, and they're different because they're all tailored to the audience. Whether the audience was a church receiving an apostolic letter or a crowd of people hearing an apostolic sermon. Each time the gospel is presented, it is tailored to the audience in a way that the audience can understand and can respond to. What I want to do with you this morning is to try to figure out what are the core elements that exist in every gospel presentation in the New Testament. And I'm calling that the four pillars of the gospel. You can call it whatever you want. I'm not consistent. Sometimes I'll say the gospel's preached in four movements or something like that. But what we want to do is we want to find the four themes, the four pillars 
that are included and are, are make up every single gospel presentation that we can read in the New Testament. And then at the end, we'll need to be introspective. And we'll need to ask ourselves, do we include these four core elements every time we preach the gospel and share the gospel with others? That's what we're going to try to do today. Now, before we get to the first pillar, I want to start with a definition. This is my definition, still a work in progress. If you have some thing, tweaks you think need to be made to it, I'm open to that. Okay. I want to give you a definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, that's what the word gospel means, of course, comes from the Greek word euangelion, just means good news, okay? The gospel is the good news that God has victoriously fulfilled his rescue plan in Christ. The good news that God has victoriously fulfilled his rescue plan. That rescue plan that started when sin and death entered the world. He has victoriously fulfilled his rescue plan in Christ. And when the gospel is proclaimed, when that gospel is proclaimed in the New Testament, it always includes these four things. Number one, whenever the gospel is presented in the New Testament, it always includes something about the history of of Israel. The history of Israel. Our New Testament's open with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes we call these books the four gospels, and that's okay, but it's not the most accurate way we could describe them. The ancient manuscripts of these books all, excuse me, all had some sort of title or superscripture up at the top of them. And they all said something like, ton euangelion, the gospel, then the Greek word kata, which means according to, and then the author's name. So it's not that there are four gospels, it's that there are, there's one gospel, and the one gospel was recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the gospel according to these four evangelists, or these four authors. And when you open up the four gospel accounts written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you will discover that all four of them begin their gospel accounts with something about the history of Israel. Matthew's jumps out right away. Matthew begins with that genealogy. He says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he documents the 14 generations from, from Abraham to David and David to Babylon and Babylon to Joseph, who, as to the earthly reckoning of things, was the father of Jesus. Matthew loves fulfillment passages. He says, this thing happened in the life of Jesus that it might be fulfilled what that prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. Or out of Egypt I have called my son. Everything in Matthew hinges on Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's history. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes to fulfill the long-storied history of the nation Israel. Mark is no different. Mark begins like this in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then Mark goes on to describe the ministry of John the baptizer. And he says, John came to fulfill the prophetic hope that someone would come to make Israel ready 
for the arrival of Messiah, to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior, of the great King. Luke is famously the only Gentile who contributed to the New Testament, but even Luke the Gentile bases everything in his gospel account about the life and person of Jesus on Israel's history. Luke's favorite Bible character, his favorite Old Testament character, is Abraham. In Luke chapters 1 and 2, Luke has those birth narratives. And he records the song of Mary. And he records a, a prophetic announcement of Zechariah, who was the father of John the baptizer. And if you read Mary's song, and the other one in Luke chapter 2 is no different. If you read Mary's song, Mary, when she realizes what's about to happen with her baby boy, she says, finally, God has fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham. To Abraham. What was the promise to Abraham? That all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's line. John. When John opens his gospel account, he takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, uh, John gives us that great incarnation passage. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, by the way, is the word for tabernacle. So in the old days, the glory of God came down in the tabernacle, in that pillar of fire or smoke. And it was so brilliant that the people, the, the Israelite priests, could not go into the tabernacle. But John says, now the word has become flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Imagine that. John says we could touch him. We could handle him. The glory of God in a human body. Jesus came as the fulfillment of Israel's long-storied history. And he came to redeem the people of Israel. But now number two, the gospel, in addition to always including something about the history of Israel, always, and this better be the most obvious one, includes something about the work of Christ. The work of Christ. The person, life, deeds, teaching, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, appearances and ascension into heaven of Jesus the Messiah is the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four evangelists and every gospel preacher who ever delivers anything about the gospel in the New Testament root everything they believe and everything they proclaim in the work of Jesus Christ. In who he is, in what he did, and in where he now sits as the cosmic king of glory, the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, of all that Jesus accomplished while he was here on the earth, the thing that gospel preachers in the New Testament focus on more than anything else is that last week in, li in the life of Christ. That final, what we sometimes call passion week, where Jesus returns to Jerusalem on a donkey when he confronts the religious leaders one final time, 
when he cleanses the temple one final time, when he's betrayed by a close personal friend, when he meets with the disciples one last time for the Passover, when he finally is arrested in the garden, he's tried uh, six different trials, he's taken to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning, and for six grueling hours, he hangs there between heaven and earth. He dies, he's buried, but then he's vindicated, and he is raised by the power of God. To show you that this is the primary emphasis of our gospel accounts, I want to look, just look at Mark as an example. Mark's whole gospel account can be divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 9 and chapters 10 through 16. When you get to chapter 10, that's when you start the final week, the Passion Week. So everything here in the first nine chapters precedes that one week. And here in these chapters, it's that week. And the Resurrection Sunday here in chapter 16. In these nine chapters, Mark uses a Greek word that we translate in our English Bibles as immediately 34 times. Mark says, Jesus went and did this. And immediately he went over here and did this. Then immediately he went over there and healed that guy. Immediately then he came over here and he preached this sermon. 34 times Mark uses that in these nine chapters. And when Mark gets to chapter 10... The word disappears. He never uses it again. Mark wants us to slow down. All of this is to get to here. To get to this week right here. That's why when Paul really wants to condense the gospel, even shorter than this here in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say something like, For I determined, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. The gospel must include and emphasize the work of Christ. You can't have the gospel without it. Number three. In addition to the history of Israel and the work of Christ, the gospel always includes something about the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. Now please listen to me here. The gospel is news. It's news. It's not a transaction. We shouldn't preach the gospel like it's a sales pitch for five easy payments of hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. You can go to heaven when you die. No one in the Bible ever taught the gospel that way. The gospel is an announcement about something amazing. That the creator God of heaven and earth came down in a body of flesh to fulfill the long hope of Israel, to rescue his image bearers who had rebelled against him, and to do that by giving his own life on the cross, then being vindicated and raised from the dead to ascend into glory and to sit on a throne to reign and to rule over the universe. 
It is an announcement of something incredible. Now, when we hear news, different kinds of news, it should invoke different kinds of reactions. Okay? Those of us who are old enough to remember 9-11, we remember how we felt, how we reacted when we heard the news of those attacks. And if you had gone out on that day and met someone who had also heard the same news, and they were clapping and cheering and giggling, you would think that is not the normal reaction to this news. The plan of salvation is the Holy Spirit's outline to how people should react to the news of what Christ has done. Now Jesus taught this first and gave it to the apostles. He told those men that when they went out and preached this, when they went out and preached how Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel's story and how now through Christ God has victoriously fulfilled his long-awaited rescue plan, when they announced this to people, that they should tell them, if you want to be a part of what Christ has accomplished, if you want to be a beneficiary of the mission that Christ has accomplished, if you want to have the forgiveness of sins and be part of the new kingdom of Messiah, this is what you need to do. Jesus said, you go out and you tell people to believe on me. To put their trust and hope in what I have done. Tell people to turn away from this life. From this world filled with sin and death. This world that's in rebellion and opposition to God. And to turn towards the Lord. You tell people to be immersed in water. To mark the time when they are forgiven of their sins. To see their sins washed away in baptism. You tell people, come into my kingdom, a new creation. And to dedicate the rest of their lives to serving me. That's what Jesus taught the disciples to preach. Now we have to be careful that we don't skip the first two and go straight to the three. Okay, we don't want to convert people to this. We want to convert people to this. We want to convert people to the Lord Jesus. And there may have been a time in America's history where we could assume that most people had already pretty well accepted these things. But that's becoming less and less the case, isn't it? So before we get here, we've got to teach people about what God has done in history and how that history led to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and to what he has accomplished. Now we've come to the last point. And that is that the gospel always includes something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew prefers, refers to God's rule and reign on the earth. It's like what Jesus prayed. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is no longer uh, rebelled against. 
God's will and reign is supreme. The kingdom of God refers to God's rule and reign on the earth. Heaven, come down to the earth. Now, I mentioned Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 earlier, where we have uh, Mary's song and Zechariah's prophetic announcement. If you go read Luke 1 and Luke 2, you will see what the Jews were expecting when the news that the kingdom of God was coming, uh, what they expected would be included in that. So when John the baptizer and Jesus came around saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, people of the Jewish faith knew what that meant. They knew Psalm 72. They knew that psalm that we read earlier. They had prayed it for generations and generations. And they knew that when the kingdom finally arrived, there'd be an outpouring of justice and righteousness and fidelity to God. They knew that the poor and the oppressed would be lifted up. They knew that the proud and the arrogant and the violent would be brought down. Psalm 72 says their face will be smashed against the dust. They knew that this kingdom would be a kingdom that all the nations would serve. All the kings would bow down before this one ruler. They knew that this king, this special king that Solomon had announced would have supreme authority and that prayers would be offered to and for him and that praise would be given to him. In the Old Testament, the kingdom always included at least four things. Kingdom always included God. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, God is over all, through all, and in all. It starts with God. The kingdom always includes a king, the ruler that God has designated, the ruler that God has delegated his authority to, the one who reigns, who protects, the one who leads and who sets the laws. That's Jesus. Kingdoms always include subjects, or citizens, those who live in the king's land, those who bend the knee to the king, who serve him, who love him, who follow him, who go wherever he leads. And finally, kingdom always includes land, territory. Now, in one sense, all the earth belongs to the Lord, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But there are still many parts of the earth that are in active rebellion against God. There are still many people on the earth who oppose the rule of God. But in spite of that rebellion, in spite of that insurrection against the Almighty, there is still a space. There is still a sacred territory that God has carved out for himself on the earth. And this is it. Right here. Right here. This is a group of people who have committed themselves to the king. Who come into God's holy presence to worship, to honor, to enjoy his fellowship. A group of people who accept the will of the king. It's hard for us. We live in a democracy and we have for generations in this country. It's hard for us to think about ancient monarchies sometimes and what that would have been like. But now, if you had a good king, my oh my, everything went great. How can you have a better king than Jesus? 
There's no civil disobedience in the kingdom of heaven. All who want to enjoy the king's blessings obey the king's law and serve him. So that now, this outpost of heaven, what the Apostle Paul calls a colony of heaven, this becomes a landing point where the honor and fame of the king is proclaimed to the world around. So that we can accomplish what God created us to accomplish in the very beginning. To fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of God. That's why you were made. That's why I was made. To fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of God. Now, we messed it up in the garden. But God gave us a king to help us. He gave us salvation to bring us back into his glorious presence and union and fellowship. And he did it all through Christ. That's the gospel. God's rescue plan, victoriously fulfilled in Christ. So maybe today you're here and you're ready to be a part of this. This next part of our service, by the way, is for you. We have a whole part of our service that is dedicated just for you. For those who are here who are ready to follow the king. Who are ready to commit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who recognize what Christ has accomplished for them, for you, and are eager to respond to it. We're going to sing a song here in just a minute. And if you're ready to be a part of this gospel, to stand with the Lord and enjoy all the blessings of the King, during this song, you come forward. You let us know what we can do for you. We want to help you in any way that we can. And so we'll stand now and we'll sing together. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.